Welcome to the Journey to the Cross podcast. This particular part of the podcast is a collection of conversations recorded for Lent, discussing the six themes of repentance, humility, suffering, lament, sacrifice, and death. We hope these conversations help you to better engage in the daily liturgical elements of the podcast as you seek to contemplate Christ's work on the cross. Today we'll be hearing from Will Walker, Todd Stuman, and Grace Rao. I'm Dorothy Bennett, and I'm excited to talk with you all more about humility and its role in the Christian life. First, wanted to lay some some groundwork. What would be a definition of biblical humility? Humility is like this really huge idea, like holiness or love. It's kind of hard to pin it down, but here's a good place to start. Humility is seeing oneself accurately in relationship to God, Mm. which on one hand would just mean like understanding our smallness in comparison to God. Mm -hmm. He's the creator. We're creatures. He's the king. We're subjects. He's the savior. We need to be saved. And so you get this idea of smallness or lowliness in relationship to God, but that doesn't mean weakness or lack of confidence because true humility has this tremendous confidence about it because Mm. it trusts in God and believes God's words. So a genuinely humble person understands that they're a child of God, that his grace is sufficient for us, that he will accomplish his purposes, and so on. There's, There's a lot you could say about that, but I think one of the functions of humility is possessing a lot of confidence and hope because we believe God's word. So that's a good place to start. Biblical humility is seeing ourselves accurately in relationship to God. I think it's even helpful to um, go back to the creation account. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 is, I think, a foundational verse in understanding biblical humility. Uh, Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils uh, the breath of life, and, and the man became a living creature. Eugene Peterson makes the point that the the Latin word for ground or earth or soil is the word humus, from mm. which we get the word human, from which we get the word humility. Um, and so um, humility is just understanding that we, we are but dust. We're made from the ground. We're made from the earth. Um, but we're more than that, right? We're, Genesis 2-7 says that God breathed his spirit into us. He breathed life into us. He gave us meaning and purpose. He filled us and he formed us. And so uh, it's not that just we are of, of the earth. We're, we're so much more. He gave us his image, but humility recognizes that he is the creator and we are the creature. What are some ways that y'all use to sort of practice that reorientation of yourself in relationship to God? Like, how do you orient yourself or posture yourself so that I mean, I feel like um, the opposite of humility is the common human stance, but what are some ways that you try and posture or recommend posturing to have that orientation? I think about this idea of like freedom in our human limits. And so kind of naming when we're running up against some kind of limit that we have mm. and and just acknowledging before God that this limit is not because there's something wrong with my creaturely self as he made me Mm. um it's actually right like my proper place Mm. in this world is like in jude there's this idea of the proper place 
that proper place is where my authority is defined and limited. Mm. And so I think one starting point is like just getting knowing for yourself where you tend to kind of start to go across that kind of proper place. And I think that's going to feel like some kind of distressing physical, emotional experience that, that we have. And those are, I think, even signals to say, okay, wait, let's hold on what's happening here. Are we starting to step outside of the like normal limits that, that God gives us on our will and our abilities um, and even our capacity to be perfect and just points us back towards dependence on him. Mm. I think it's really fascinating to think about what you just said in terms of like, okay, then what would the indicators be that I'm trying to live beyond my limits? Things that we all experience like, you know, burnout, feeling overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. um, feeling like life's just kind of spiraling, you know, we can't figure out our schedules, no margin, all that stuff. I just thinking about it in those terms is really, really interesting to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like Psalm 131 as kind of an actual picture of what humility looks and feels like rather than defining it by something you don't do. And mm-hmm. there's, I mean, I guess it still defines it by some things that you don't do, but it says, my my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things that are too great or marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. And so there's this idea that my heart is not, is not like filled with, you know, these kind of puffed up feelings of pride. My eyes, what I'm thinking about, my attention is not on like all the wrong things. Um, and I'm not busying myself and like striving with things. I actually have like a physical kind of settling mm-hmm. in that proper place. And I, Todd, I think it was a sermon you gave on Psalm 131. And the one of the points was, when we can actually do that, we actually just get to enjoy God. We're no longer like mm. eagerly going after like the milk. We get to just relax and enjoy the presence of like mom in this passage or God in our lives. Yeah, it, it does seem extremely common though to be constantly pushing against that, to be achievement oriented, to have desires outside of that, to try and put yourself within the God role in your own life and fulfill those desires. Why does that exist for us? Is striving after achievements bad? Yeah, I don't think achievement is bad. Um, I think the scripture talks about, uh, it's this term vainglory uh, is bad. Mm. It's, you know, Philippians 2 um, says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That word conceit is the word vainglory. Mm-hmm. Um, and vainglory is the idea of we we want glory, uh, and so we pursue it without having the substance of glory. You know, God has glory in and of Himself. Um, it's this weightiness about who God is. We want that, and so we pursue it, but it's vanity. And so when we per- pursue achievements to be glorified, to be acknowledged, to be admired, to be worshipped in a sense, then we, we're pursuing vainglory, and so. God doesn't rule out achievement as something that humans shouldn't pursue. It's what reason do we pursue them? Yeah, we keep going back to the Genesis story because that's where it begins. <laughs> uh, actually, we're created for incredible achievement. Subdue and fill the earth mm. is a massive mission, uh, greater than anything any human has ever thought of doing. Mm-hmm. And so where it gets twisted is like Genesis 3, 
or they want glory for themselves. That story gets told over and over in the scriptures, most famously, like in the Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. There's a group of people saying, let's, let's work our way to heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves, is really what they say. And that's the vain glory. Um, interestingly, this morning, I'm reading through the Psalms, and this morning I read Psalm 48, which is about the city of Zion. And they're boasting in it. And, but it's a, it's a godly rejoicing because God has built the city. Mm. He talks about you know, foreign kings come and they see the strength and the beauty of our city and they panic and they flee and let us rejoice. But then at the end, he says, you know, he wants the people of God to like walk around the city and see how amazing it is so that they can tell generations to come that this is their God. Mm. That, so there's a lot of ambition. It's about building a city, but it's a city that God built for his glory as opposed to... Let's make a name for ourselves. Jesus, the incarnate word, the Godhead in body, the miracle birth, it dawned human flesh. Really like what you brought up about vainglory because it reminds me of the bit in Mark 10 where James and John are asking you to be seated at the right and left hand of Christ. They're, they're desiring something, it's an mm-hmm. achievement to be had. Um, but then Christ immediately parallels it to his actions on earth and what he's going to to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, it's a really interesting uh, juxtaposition that we have of like our achievements and then when Christ came to earth, what he achieved. Um, very humble life that he lived on earth. What are things in that narrative that stand out to you of Christ's humility? I mean, in some ways you could say that Jesus lived a life of humility um, from beginning to end. The very fact of his incarnation is humility. When we say the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we're saying that God, who existed from all eternity, took on human form. Just reading back in Philippians 2, verse 6, it says, uh, although he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or he... He was in very nature God, but he didn't hold on to his all his rights as God as for selfish advantage. Um, and so there's something about the very nature of God that is humble in, in the sense that God uses position and power to bless others, mm. right? He, he gives it away, and Jesus embodies that, that mm-hmm. giving away of advantage uh, uh, for the good of others. Which we you could say is the opposite of what James and John were trying to do. They were trying to assert themselves for their own advantage mm-hmm. to position and power. But Jesus had sort of a downward movement with his position and power. Mm. My favorite part of that story is, and maybe it's in the parallel account, it's actually their mom mm-hmm. asking Jesus to exalt James and John to oh, the yeah. right and left. Yeah. And just a little mom. side note on parenting. <laughs> <laughs> Some of uh, some of the sideways ambition that our kids have is because we gave it to them. We our culture, we just want our kids to be the best at everything, and so we spend all kinds of time and money, and we sort of create in them this sense that they've got to they've got to climb the ladder, they've got to excel, they've got to be on top, and so yeah, I got it from mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, my Danny is only 10 months old, and already I have a lot of sideways ambitions for him. <laughs> so it is, it is constantly good to remember that relationship with God and relationship with Christ should be my ultimate ambition for him. Um, but so hard to remember that because I think a lot of my personal ambitions 
of my life then just kind of like overflow into like he's an extension of me. Therefore, I want him to succeed, succeed in all of these things and mm-hmm. just not a good orienting of my mentality. I think, Dorothy, going back to your question about why, like, why is this drive to succeed in us? Mm-hmm. I think like our we're created to be like fully known and like our deepest fear is to be re- rejected. Mm. And even reading through the Lent devotional there, like Jesus was rejected yeah. by the father, the father like turned away. And so I think there's this like innate huge fear in us that like, if we're seen, people are going to turn away yeah, and we're going to be kind of like lost in the mix. And I think achievements, something that we can like, if we have that kind of view of self that we're not yet accepted, then achievements are really helpful because they actually like make us feel like we're adding so that people won't turn away. Yeah. Um, and so I, I don't think achievements are, are bad at all. Maybe it's more of like, what's your relationship to your achievements? Like, how do you feel towards your achievements when you think about them? Mm-hmm. Do you like puff up with pride or do you like retract? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, how all of this maps onto the life of Jesus and in terms of like achievement and sense of self and relationship to God. So he had this one driving purpose, which was to go to the cross mm-hmm. and die for sins and to be raised. And so he was constantly devoted and submitted to that purpose, which culminates in the, like, you know, the garden of Gethsemane, you get this perfect picture of like subordination and submission to the will of God. But then if you back up and think about his life, his humility is shown in all of the accomplishments and achievements that weren't that, that he denied. Mm-hmm. So even like his temptation in the wilderness was a temptation to show his greatness. But he, just, he denied that because it wasn't, it wasn't his purpose. Mm. It wasn't the, the achievement that God called him or sent him here to do. And then you just see that over and over, constantly, even with the disciples. They're like, they want to push him up to the top, you know? They want him to stick around because more people can be healed, and he takes time to go pray and be with the Father. Like, he just kind of has this sense of who he is with God and what he's been called to do, and he says stuff like that. He says, like, I can only do what I see the Father doing. Mm-hmm. I can only say what the Father tells me to say. Like, he just constantly deferring to that driving purpose. That passage in, well, in Luke 4, when Jesus is being tempted— that is the one that blows my mind around Jesus' humility every time because he he like accepted these full human limits that came along with like extreme urges, like being very hungry for 40 days, more mm-hmm. hungry than like any of us has, has felt. And he actually also had the ability to meet those needs. He just mm. didn't because, and he was going to eat bread again. Like it's not that bread was sinful and he was going to eat bread again. Mm-hmm. He was just willing to say, I won't even make a move on my needs until God meets those. I think another scene um, that we think about when we think about the humility of Jesus is when he washes the disciples' feet um, in John 13 on the night, you know, of it, he would be arrested later, uh, you know, before the meal, somebody needs to wash everybody's feet. None of the disciples are going to do it. And I think we judge the disciples. I think, come on, guys, you know, somebody do this. And yet I wouldn't have done that. Um, uh, and so he wash, he, he takes the form of, of a servant, washes their feet. Then they have the meal um, and the reclining at the table. And this, what's really interesting, if, if you look at Luke's account, I was thinking about that uh, uh, this morning. If you look at Luke's account of that, they've, Jesus has washed the feet, 
They've, they've had the meal. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, which we still celebrate. And then this is what Luke says. And then a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. <laughs> you know, so it's like they missed it completely. They're at the table arguing about, like jockeying for position, like cabinet positions in the, in the kingdom. Mm. But Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and let the leader as, as the one who serves. For who is greater, Jesus says, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? And he's like, you would say it's the one who reclines at the table, not the waiter who's waiting on them. But then he says, but I am among you as one who serves. And I just think that's amazing. Jesus self-identifies as a servant. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he basically says humility is a part of who I am, and he, and he flips the, the idea of greatness right there for the disciples. Even though they had missed it in the foot washing, they had missed it when he's breaking the bread and passing the cup and saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. They're still arguing. There's, you know, there's something in our flesh that still wants to like rise to the top. Mm-hmm. In Christ's example of moving within his community, um, we obviously have an example that we're supposed to look after and like follow as a Christian. Um, but then it's it's often really hard to uh, be humble within community, but you need community in order to help you in your journey with humility. What has been y'all's experience with pursuing humility in community? Or like, why is community so necessary to that journey for us? I think about times where I've been like freed from pride um, or striving when other people were humble in community. Mm. And so when somebody comes to community and says like, this is the full me, the gifts, the sins, the weaknesses, this is full me. I then have permission to mm. do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just like a beautiful, you know, bi-directional, every, like both the person who opens up in community is blessed by not being rejected mm-hmm. and other people who hear that story also get blessed in the permission to just accept ourselves as we are in process in this moment, because that's who mm-hmm. God is, has made us to be. Hmm. I think it's helpful. Community also helps us see ourselves accurately if, if we allow it to, because we realize that we are not omni-gifted. You know, we, we, we need one another, and mm-hmm. there's something you know, beautiful to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I was thinking of Romans 12, which has a pretty great definition of pride and humility. But it's in the context of what you're talking about, Todd, just the gifting of the community. So in Romans 12, 3, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So there's, there's the pride. But to think with sober judgment, which is the humility. And again, he doesn't say think less of yourselves than you ought mm-hmm. to. Just, just think of yourself soberly, accurately in relationship to God and with each other. And then he goes on to talk about exercising your gift as you've been given it, and it goes through a whole bunch of stuff. But here it's in the context of community where he's talking about the need for humility. And the flip side of that, I think, is community exposes our lack of humility. Um, it's not hard to be humble when I'm by myself. You know? <laughs> it's when I get around others that I start thinking about who's the greatest, and yeah. that begins to expose the tension. I think it's interesting, too, that in Philippians 2, which is the famous chapter on the humility of Jesus, 
right before that, Paul is talking about the unity of the church. You know, he's calling the church to unity. And I think he's making the point that you can't have unity without humility. So you can't have true community in a biblical sense without humility because we all have different preferences. We all have different ideas. We all have different opinions and interests and ways of doing things. And if we cling to those things, then we'll never have unity. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll just be a bunch of individuals. But if we defer to one another, if we look out for the interests of others, if we consider one another more important than ourselves, then we begin to move towards this beautiful unified body, which is not uniformity. It's unifying a diverse people into one, I mean, which requires humility. You know, I have this this thought that's like tangentially related at least, but I think even our like physiological capacity to connect is dampened when we go into states of defense. And I think like driving Here after <laughs> like driving after achievements is like could probably be traced to our actual like stress response in our nervous system and like retreating in like the opposite of pride probably being shame is like also probably could be traced to Mm. a physiological stress response system. And what we know about our nervous system is we can't simultaneously be in a state of connection and defense at the same time. Wow. And so it's, and that even these states are like kind of contagious, like we have in community or person to person, we feel each other's emotions and we have a tendency to like co-regulate to Mm. wherever like the people around us are um and i think that that's like one the like huge benefit of that is like one person being humble makes it safe for everybody else and can just lower those defense responses in a moment and then the vulnerability there is that the opposite can happen too which is probably what we're seeing in that passage with james and john so if someone acts selfishly other people begin to gravitate towards the field that they're at someone acts in defense other people will act in defense Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like actually in our brain something called a mirror neuron that like helps us with empathy, but also mm. images in our brain what somebody else is experiencing. And so if I'm in defense, that's that's not going to feel safe to you. And so your defenses are going to be like, what's going on? Yeah. This person's a threat to me. I need to be in the state of defense. Mm. Wow. No, there's a lot there to think about. And I love that looking at the neurons of the human brain, how that echoes the communal need for somebody to almost break the tension, either direction, positive or negatively, mm-hmm. and then how other people will follow. It is interesting to think about how we enter a room. Because you can feel, you know, you can feel it if everybody enters the room thinking about themselves. There's something to, you know, what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking about going to conferences. You know, mm. so we go to these pastor's conferences Sometimes I just don't like the feel when I walk in the room. Mm. And I don't think it's anybody's trying to be anything other than who they are. Um, but I feel in myself a sense of like competition, comparison. And I never thought about that maybe the, there's even like a physical component to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet in that moment, it feels like everybody's walking in the room thinking about themselves mm-hmm. rather than considering others more important than themselves. It also then underscores the just incredible moment of, of piercing through our normal world whenever we do experience somebody who comes to community in humility, um, either confesses or brings in their friends into like what they're struggling with or like who they are mm-hmm. as a person mm-hmm. and their, their normal sin patterns and how that can just completely change 
our mentality or how striking it can be mm-hmm. whenever that happens, um, which I've experienced in community as well. And it does just open up this safe space and desire to meet them on the same field that they're at, mm-hmm. which is incredible. I think something you just said is really important because you, you sort of distinguish between two sides of the pride coin, which are this kind of arrogance, power position thing, but also an insecurity. Uh, you know, what do I bring to the table? And, and both of those are just self-concern mm-hmm. in different ways. And so we tend to think pride is typically just the arrogance, but it's really just any kind of self-concern because that's the thing that keeps me from thinking about others. Mm-hmm. And uh, you guys have all mentioned this, but it made me think of Kendall's talk at the Life Together conference that we did a few years ago uh, when he just talks about being an effective member of a gospel community means coming into the room thinking about others. Mm. And if everyone just came thinking, not what do I need and what can I get, but how can I serve, how can I meet needs, one, everybody's needs would get met in a very God-honoring, glorifying way, and two, there would just be such life to that. Um, but so even just in a small scale, like in our gospel communities, this idea is really powerful just to think about entering the room, thinking about others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kurt Thompson, is a, he's a Christian psychiatrist that I really like, and he has this, this idea of like whenever you're about to walk into a room, um, just imagine Jesus winking at you and saying, let's go illuminate this room. Our boast is in Jesus, our low-born Lord. Who in humble made himself poor. What would be some fruitful ways do you, that y'all think of? And like, this is a good way to develop the posture of humility in my day-to-day life and in community. I, I think one of the most encouraging things about Philippians 2, you know, Philippians 2 verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. In Christ Jesus. It's a call to a mindset of humility, and yet Paul says, we actually we have it. Uh, in Christ, we have the mind of Christ, it, this mindset of humility, and so we can walk in that. And I think, but, but I do think it's something we have to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Jesus became the kind of person who would give his life away because he had spent his life becoming the kind of person who would give his life away. In other words, the big decision of dying on the cross I think it was cultivated by a lifestyle of tiny decisions of humility throughout his life. And Dallas Willard talks about becoming like Jesus is disciplining ourselves to live like Jesus in all the small ways. So mm-hmm. be the last in line. Take the smallest piece of pie. Um, <laughs> hang back after GC and help clean up, and even if nobody gives you credit for it. You know, I, I think there are disciplines, things we can mm-hmm. do to cultivate that mindset that, mm-hmm. that we've been given. The Philippians 2 passage is great because the beginning of it is all these commands to be humble. Just like, wait, what? I can't, I can't just do it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, then the, and then the second part of it is Jesus' example of humility. Well, I definitely can't do that, but the verse Todd mentioned is the hinge, you know? You know ha- be humble, have this mind among yourselves, which is a, a lowliness of mind. That's what humility means. For you already have this. So you have capacity for humility. That's not the thing we have to get. We, God has given it to us in Christ through our union with him. But you have to develop that capacity. You have to learn it and grow in it through the disciplines that Todd mentioned uh, and through, I think that second part is looking to Jesus. So I look to Jesus. I see his example. So I know what it looks like. 
But also looking to him transforms me. It softens my heart, puts me in right position in relationship to God and others. Then I can begin to just do these things that he's saying. It's like C.S. Lewis talked about if you don't feel loving, just start doing Mm -hmm. loving things Mm -hmm. and the affections will follow. And I I think all disciplines work like that. And I think humility works like that in some ways. Just start, if let's just pretend you cared more about other people than yourself. (laughs) What would you do? Start doing that. Mm-hmm. And as you, that's how you learn and grow in it. And over time, humility actually becomes somewhat second nature. Mm. You're not thinking about it anymore. And that's when it's really true humility. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm doing humble things, I'm thinking about how humble they are. And that's mm-hmm. not true humility. Um, but I have to just keep doing them in faith, hoping that there's a day that I don't even know I'm doing them. And then that, that's mm. humility. The only other thing I was thinking about in terms of disciplines was in Matthew 6, Jesus points us to the discipline of secrecy. So you have the religious leaders and the Pharisees doing all these religious things so that they could be seen. And he says, hey, the anecdote to this is do stuff in secret, Mm. pray in secret, give in secret, trusting that God who sees in secret rewards those. And so um, I think John Ortberg, stealing from Dallas Willard, talks about the discipline of secrecy, Mm. which is literally just do good things in a way that no one can find out. And uh, so hard. I have experimented with this <laughs> and it just kills you. You just want to tell somebody. Yeah. And that exposes like the need I have for the attention of it. There's, you know, there's probably only like one or two things I've ever done that nobody knows about. Yeah. Um, and even, even as I say that right now, I want to tell you about them, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but you know, just, it can be really small things, but that discipline begins to form our character to be looking to God in our works and not into others. And that, I think that's fundamental to humility. Mm. I do kind of think like if you, if you want to think less about yourself, like, like actually asking, so why are you thinking about yourself mm. so much? Going back to the Kurt, Kurt Thompson stuff, uh, what's the story you're telling about yourself to yourself? We mm. like, you know, we live in stories and there's like, a kind of implicit story about ourselves that we live out and kind of asking what is what is the story that i'm telling myself about myself is that actually accurate is there can i apply the gospel here and just have a more accurate view in light of who god is and who he's made me to be mm-hmm. what about preaching the gospel to yourself yeah mm-hmm. i think there's something you you ask how do you how do you cultivate this in your life I think there's something about muscle memory, about how we do life that, um, you know, everyone around us, including ourselves, is clamoring to get to the top of the ladder. Um, And yet Jesus is saying, no, let's race to the bottom Mm. of the ladder and, and serve one another. And I just think that everything in our flesh is trained to do the opposite of what Jesus is saying. And so I, I do think there is... Um, over time, a reorient, reorienting ourselves to live like him. And um, I've, I've shared this before, um, but, you know, when my wife and I had our first baby, she used to wake up in the middle of the night and she'd have a dirty diaper and it was like, who's going to go change the diaper? <laughs> and, and one night we're laying there in bed and we're like, all right, let's farkle for it. You know, rock, paper, scissors. And so we're about to do the rock, paper, scissors. And Amy, my wife says, Christian farkle. And I was like, what? And she goes, whoever wins 
goes and changes the diaper. Mm. And I was like, oh yeah, I love this. And so we did it. <laughs> I won. Mm. I had to go change the diaper, which I did not love. Mm-hmm. But there is something to that, right? That it captures the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. The winner is the servant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and but everything in the world says the winner gets to tell others what to do or gets to the credit or gets the you know, and so I think if we could kind of have retrain ourselves and I think it takes community to do that and preaching the gospel to, you know telling ourselves mm-hmm. the right story uh, mm-hmm. as part of that so mm-hmm. I think Henry Nowen uses the phrase voluntary displacement uh, when you were talking about the muscle memory of just like we have these days that we just kind of run in I think to cultivate humility we do need to make some some voluntary displacement decisions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you see this like when you just go with your GC to serve at Community First or one of our partnerships, that's a, that is a moment, momentary dis, voluntary displacement. It's mm-hmm. not what I would normally do, mm-hmm. but by doing that, I put myself in a situation of dependence and service and relationship, you know, all kinds of things that cultivate humility. And probably, there's probably just a lot of ways we need to think about how do, I, how do I just voluntarily get outside my normal rhythms, be with people that I wouldn't normally be with, be in situations I wouldn't normally be in, I think that would have a way of cultivating Mm. humility. Mm -hmm. I really like that. And I like thinking about that as a form of commissioning at the end of Mm. this conversation. Having conversations around humility always prompts, I don't want to say like an inspiration, but almost like an itch to be a part of this subversion of reality Mm -hmm. and to to be a part of this divine thing that was example to us in Christ, which Mm. I just really love. Well, thank you guys so much for discussing this with us and, um, really enjoyed hearing more about all of your thoughts on humility. It was very, uh, quote-unquote, inspiring, but also just very lovely to uh, ruminate about these things with y'all. Thank you, Dorothy. Thank you. The Lord, praise the Son of God, the Son of Man, He's the end.